Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. And Julie, what is the title of today's episode? Roller Derby Microbiome. Yes. Just like that. It's a great It's a great title. We, we put a lot of thought into these. And uh, what are we talking about when we talk about roller derby microbiome? Well, I mean, we're talking about uh, colonization, really, of various microbial teams in our universes. Yes. Our universes meaning, like, in, on our bodies, mm-hmm. outside of our bodies, in our workspaces, private spaces, public spaces. Yes. Now, in our most recent episode, we talked about cubicle death. We talked about our workspaces. And we touched upon the, the key concept that we're really getting into here. And that's the idea that uh, at some point there was a, an individual, a primordial office worker, if you will. Mm-hmm. get mythic here. And, the first. Uh, yes. And, uh, and we'll, we'll, call, uh, we'll call him uh, Adam. All right. I was going to say, why don't we go with Eve? We can, well, we can go with Eve. We'll Microbial with Eve. Eve. Microbial. We'll go with Adam and Eve. How about that? All right. Yeah. So Adam and Eve are out in the in the paradise, and and they have a lot of work to do because uh, God has tasked them with uh, uh, working up all these Excel spreadsheets mm-hmm. about what all the animals are going to be named. They have they have to put in a budget uh, request. A lot of work to get done. Uh, they have to make goals for the coming fiscal year, mm-hmm. and uh, they're just out there in the midst of all this nature. Mosquitoes are coming up to them. Uh, un- unnamed animals are coming up and wanting to be named. There's a serpent just talking nonstop about mm-hmm. some tree. What are they going to do? They're like, we got to get out of this nature. So how do I get out of this nature, out of all this disturbing nature that's messing with my vibe, that's potentially making me sneeze or itch? Mm-hmm. I need to create an artificial world in which I can work, when I can shut everything out, a nice clean space, an indoor space that will be my office. A true human habitat. Yes, and fast forward, here we are now. I mean, we, we do not live out in nature anymore. At least most of us do not, right? Mm-hmm. We have some sort of structure around us, and therefore we have created our own little microbiomes in these buildings that we dwell in. You know, I'm realizing now I should have gone with Sophia as the uh, as, as the name of our mythical office worker, because I had gone into the, the Gnostic idea that uh, Sophia, from a primary right. ideal universe, uh, falls and creates, uh, ultimately creates, um, a flawed universe in which we all reside now. Because that's sort of what any kind of indoor office space is, a flawed version of the more ideal environment that exists outside these walls. And, of course, we are talking today not just about the microbiome yes. on our bodies, but the environment that we see around us in microbes. In fact, I, I invite everybody to put on their microbiome vision or their goggles okay. and begin to imagine a world that comes alive just in germs, right? So look around you on the walls. There are various species of, of microbes there. They're on your feet, on your, on, on your desk surface, on your food. It's, everything is teeming with microbes. Yeah, it's, it's pretty much like that old uh, Saturday Night Live skit where they had the fecal vision goggles that they would put on. Yes. And they would see growing green, green, uh, uh, substance wherever a fecal matter was present. Mm-hmm. And it's just a horror show because the individual, um, uh, wearing it, I think it was Meadows, uh, is just seeing just like green stuff all over people's hands and faces, all over a baby, all over the walls. Uh, it's just grim. It's true. Uh, according to Stanford microbiologist Stanley Falco, the world is covered in a fine patina of feces. 
And we need to start thinking about that because really that is informing uh, to some degree our measures of health. So when I talk about that, our health and our microbiome, we should probably do a quick overview of what a microbiome is. Uh, I know we've talked about it before, but mm-hmm. how it affects us. Because this is a, a huge field um, that is growing, that, that's giving us a ton of information about how we operate in the world based on these little critters around us. Yeah, I mean, it comes down to the basic principle that uh, the human body is not organism, but the human body is organisms living uh, together in some degree of unison. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we're talking about 100 trillion microbial cells. You've heard it before. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are outnumbered 10 to 1 in terms of our own cells uh, versus bacterial cells. Yeah, we come into this world, we are colonized, and we remain colonized throughout our entire lives. Yeah, in fact, um, when you say we come into this world, when we are born, if we are born vaginally, that's when we get our first slathering of these bacterial cells. And these are really important because these bacterial cells help to inform our immune systems. Yeah, we've evolved with this situation. So in a sense, it comes, what we're talking about here is a natural extrapolation of this in terms of our, our physical environments that we create, because just as the human body is not a situation of, all right, here's the clean human, here's the infected human. Mm-hmm. It's also not a clear-cut situation of, here is a, a clean working environment, here is an infected one. All humans are infected or colonized, and all spaces are colonized. Right. In the Human Microbiome Project, was trying to get a baseline of what a normal microbiome looks like. And they still don't have this, by the mm-hmm. way, but this is their first attempts to try to figure out what something might look typically for each person. So what they did is they took 200 scientists at 80 institutions and they sequenced the genetic material of bacteria taken from 250 healthy people, which, by the way, they took it from all various areas of their body. Um, And that yielded something like 11,000 plus samples that they're going through. And again, they're trying to figure out what might a baseline of a normal microbiome look like. And why does it even matter? Well, it turns out that each human contains up to 10,000 strains of bacteria with 8 million bacterial genes. And this is in contrast to 22,000 human genes. So again, this idea begins to build that... There's things going on in your bacterial cells that are gaming not just your immune system, but your gut um, and informing your gut about how you feel. Right. We've talked about this before, the the mind-body connection between the gut. Um, And also, um, we're also finding out that that each person has a tailor-made combination uh, of bacteria in their body. And bacteria differs uh, on your body depending on where it is. So it could be like a rainforest in one mm-hmm. area or the desert in another area. So the workspace becomes a melting pot. Each of us is kind of a ship from a different nation carrying its own mix of uh, of individuals ready to colonize a new world. And then our skin falls off as it does in the office place. People break wind. People's <laughs> shoes fart uh, as they walk. The yeah. pressure of your, your feet and your shoes starts shooting out. Uh, so we're, we, we colonize the world around us with our own particular uh, uh, cocktail of uh, microbiology. And it's true, right? Because we, we've talked about this again, that the gut microbia that is in there is specific to your diet, right? Mm-hmm. So if you eat a lot of sushi um, then and you live in Japan, then you have a gut microbe that can break down seaweed. And your that gut microbe, by the way, adapted itself from a marine animal, and it basically took up a sequence of that genetic code of that marine animal, and then took it 
unto itself to then be able to use the sequence in your gut so it could also break down seaweed. And that, I think, is the amazing thing is that bacteria can swap genes and pieces of DNA uh, with itself. And that makes it highly adaptable. So not only are you walking around in your office with your own microbiome, but it's doing things that are specific to you. And now, let's say your office is not necessarily your traditional workspace. Let's say your office is roller derby. Okay. What happens? Where Where is my desk in the roller derby? Or are you saying I'm a roller derby queen? You are a roller derby queen. What is your roller derby name, by the way? Oh, um, I, I like uh, to stick with the show branding. I'll go with Buster Stuffington. Buster Stuffington? Does it need to be more ladylike? Busty Stuffington. Yes. That's my roller derby name. Okay, I was going to say lamb to the slaughter, but I don't know if that really like shows like, hey, like oh, I'm going to slaughter you. Or, or is it an individual name? Individual name. Individual name. I'm going with Busty Stuffington. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. So you're you're in your office, which is basically like a roller derby track. Okay. Okay. And let's say that you're the home team. Okay. There are two other teams that are coming to compete with you in this tournament. Okay. You've got your microbiome and your team, by the way, shares a similar microbiome. Okay. All right. So this is evidence that when we are grouped together... In a situation, we begin to share the same aspects or the same profile of bacteria, which is interesting. Okay. Now, if you are um, about to start your game and you begin elbowing someone and you just smash into one of the opposing teams, well, what are you doing when you come into contact with them? Well, I'm assaulting them with my elbow bones, but I'm also uh, colonizing them with a little bit of, uh, of skin flakes, at least skin flakes, assuming nothing else comes off. All right. So exactly. Now you're you're swapping your bacterial cells, and what? Uh, That's right. I'm getting some of theirs on me as well, especially if I get them right in the, the the kisser. Right. So what researchers have found, and this is fascinating, is that um, not only do you share the same microbiome or aspects of it with your team, but by the end of that tournament, when you get swabbed again, you're going to find out that the other team's microbiomes that you swapped some sweat with are now trying to colonize your microbiome. Wow. They're trying to take you over, at least at the skin level. Interesting. And not only that, but your microbiome also has aspects, similar aspects to the roller derby that you primarily work out of. So the opposing team is taking all of their bacteria from their roller derby hall and transmitting it to So they have a home microbiome advantage in a sense. Well, you, you you have the home advantage. Oh, okay. Yeah. I do. Yeah. But they're bringing their they're environment bringing with, with you. Oh, okay. So what, what we're talking about here is like here's an extreme form of, let's say, an office community. It's not really an office community, but a job, you know, per se. And they are bringing their environments with them, and they're sharing it with each other. So it becomes a very interesting question of to what extent can we affect each other with our microbiomes? So um, I wanted to bring up a New Yorker article called Microbiomes and Health, How We Colonize Each Other with Bacteria. Uh, Balfour Sartor, he's a gastroenterologist at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and he specializes in inflammatory bowel disease, like, say, like Crohn's. He says that there is a growing stack of evidence, some published, some not, that people who have lived with inflammatory bowel disease sufferers for long periods of time they have a higher rate of it than them themselves than people in the general population. 
So there's this growing idea that perhaps you could be colonized over time by someone else's gut bacteria, especially if you're exposed to that. Because as we know, if you uh, if you flush the toilet, some of the bacteria gets aerosolized and then shot up into the air and then gets on surfaces, and then you can pick that up. That can that bacteria that you pick up on your hands can go into your mouth, go into your gut. Lo and behold, you are you are introducing another bacterium. Huh. Now. I'm thinking of now of the posters in the work in our, all of our workspaces that you know tell you what um, what sexual harassment is, and I think one of them is inappropriate touching. Does this count as inappropriate touching? Because I did not ask anyone <laughs> to invade me with their microbiome, and it's happening. Well, this is that this that's interesting because then you begin. Okay, let's say we have this understanding of the microbiome that's really like in 20 years that's really advanced, nuanced. Do people become hyper aware of how they interact with others? Is it aggressive to swipe at someone that you don't know, or you're trying to like give your your uh, Let's so say you have some sort of stomach ailment, and you're mm-hmm. trying to give them your uh, gut bacteria. Don't even—I don't even want to talk about it, how it got on your hands <laughs> in the first place. But you know, it could this be an act of aggression? Or does it become like a rite of passage? It's kind of like welcome to the family. Welcome. It's like being blood brothers with everyone. Like, like we we welcome you into this office space, office space, <laughs> and now we shall have the ritual licking of the palms and high fiving, so that we may all be of the same microbiome. Well, it's true. Just something symbolic, like a handshake, becomes that much more. Right? You start mm-hmm. your first day of work, and you have the handshake with people. We should all do the cough in the hand handshake first day. Just like the good- solidarity. Yeah. Yeah. Like you might as well say, hey, we you're going to get colonized by by the microbiome here at work. So just let's go ahead and have at it. Yeah. Hold for like five seconds just to make sure everybody gets on. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will explore the microbiome roller derby even more. All right, we're back with more roller derby microbiome. We're back. All right, we wanted to bring up Jessica Green and something called bio-informed design because she's taken this idea, this idea that we're we're not just the the germs on our skin or inside of our body, but we're also affecting our environments and our environments are affecting us. And she is a biodiversity scientist and director of the Biology and the Built Environment Center at the University of Oregon. She has a good TED Talk on this. And her work really is is trying to understand the role of the microbial ecosystems on human health. So she and her team decided to study the Lilith Building. This is on the campus of the University of Oregon. And the reason why they wanted to look at it is because it uh, has a nice bacterial stew in the form of classrooms, offices, and restrooms. And so, in other words, you get, again, that fine patina of feces in yes. the form of restrooms, right, the restroom spray. Uh, you get a nice transient population of microbial colonies from students. Mm-hmm. Varying backgrounds, yeah. Yeah, who are traipsing in all sorts of stuff, right, on their feet, on their hands, on that pizza pockets, they just ate. In their hair. In yeah. their ears, the navel, you name it. <laughs> and then they have a stable population of colonies in the form of those who dwell in the office space. Yes. So this this is such an interesting um, project to me because they, they took it and they worked with an architect and they sort of resurrected the building using computer program. And then they started working to say, okay, well, if we... 
if we use this louver system with the windows in one part of the building, and this louver system, if you've ever seen them before, they're they're pretty popular, like in places like tropical places like Hawaii, where you mm-hmm. can just kind of move these metal grates in the windows, and yes. you can move them so that they all line up and they're flat, and they can keep the elements out. Okay, or you could just move them, and then they would open up a bit, and you could get some real fresh airflow in. Yeah, you do see them a lot in Hawaii where you have more of a stable, constant temperature and you can just keep things pretty pretty nice with just the, the natural breeze. Yeah, so they they use this. Um, sometimes they had natural airflow, airflow coming in and out and sometimes they closed it and then they just used the ventilation system. And what they found is that they were really specific microbial colonies based on where they were. So those classrooms had a different uh, profile than, say, the offices or even the banks of elevators. And what happened is that when they opened those louvers, they found that the microbial cloud dissipated with the introduction of fresh air. And this became really important because Green is looking at how to best uh, structure or manipulate that environment to have a really good or healthy microbial profile for people. Yeah, it comes down to like we we said earlier this old this old outdated idea that we are creating a pristine indoor environment for our pristine indoor lives, and that that's completely cut off from the teeming living world outside. No, we we can't have it that uh, cut and dry. We're going to have microbes living all in our environments, but we're going to have a different type of environment and not necessarily, and well, certainly the research is saying not a better one. Right. And she's, she's very cautious about the research because it's pretty early with this. A little too cautious. The interview I was seeing, they kept like kind of trying to seed some like really yeah. mind blowing comments and just like, I'm not going there just yet. The research is, and which is commendable. She's, she's holding back and saying that we're working on that, that's the next phase, or the research doesn't really indicate uh, exactly what kind of take we should have on this just yet. Right, because she's saying that the next phase of their research is trying to line up two, two bits of this, the environment and the humans, the two kinds of ecosystems, and mm-hmm. really bear out some, some research that she already has a hunch about. Uh, but she wants to see them work together in parallel before she says anything. And, again, this is, this is sort of a new field because if this bears out the sort of things that we think it will, then architects will begin to consider this in design. So you're not just going to have a green building that uh, has low carbon emissions, but you're also going to have a green building with a healthy microbiome in it. So it's it's interesting because she, she also is looking at the study with Portland uh, or a Portland hospital. And again, it's that me- mechanical ventilated rooms. Yes. That is showing an increase in pathogens. So in other words, if they didn't give this this hospital access to outside air to help dissipate that microbial cloud, then it turned out that those pathogens increased because, again, you're manipulating in the environment and you're making it uh, so that these pathogens can live and actually thrive in it. And this is a hospital setting, so that's yeah. obviously a problem. Yeah, you have you end up with your outdoor air, and then you have your indoor air. And the indoor air is uh, is full of things as well. It's it's not again not this pristine, clean stuff that we think it is. Uh, they were finding that uh, bacterial communities in indoor environments contain many taxa that are absent or rare outdoors, including again many of those that are tied to human pathogens. Yeah. So you have this alti- uh, artificial environment, this kind of zoo of weird things <laughs> circulating in the air. 
And she's saying, like, you know, in, in terms of a hospital environment, it's a little like having a weed in your your backyard and just mm-hmm. torching the entire backyard to get rid of the weed. The same thing is happening in these hospital environments. And it's important to have the outside air come in because, uh, you know, when you have traces of the outdoors and you have traces of, say, soil come in, that soil, it turns out, is really important to create that profile of what a healthy microbiome might look like. In fact, there is a bacterium in soil called Mycobacterium vasi that scientists at Sage Colleges of Troy, New York, found can actually reduce anxiety and increase learning capabilities. It stimulates neuron growth. Yes. And of course, this is in mice. But when they when they fed it to them or when they inhaled it, yes, it increased neuron growth. And it caused the serotonin levels to increase, which reduced their anxiety. And then, this is so cool, when they wanted to test to see if it increased or enhanced their learning abilities, uh, researcher Dorothy Matthews and her colleagues fed them this bacterium, or rather one group, and then a control group, and then they let them loose on this maze, and it turned out that the, the group had been, that had been dosed with the bacterium... These are mice, right, not humans? Yes. Okay. Although, that would be... Because for a second there, I was picturing humans instead of mice, and it was kind of crazy. Going through a maze? Yeah, after being <laughs> dosed with bacteria. Somehow in my mind, they're naked. Yes. Like, yeah, of I course, so. they're running naked through the maze. Uh, but those mice that, that were dosed, they actually were able to run through twice as fast with less demonstrated anxiety behaviors as control mice. So there's this idea, again, that um, some of these bacteriums or some of this bacteria is very helpful to the way that our bodies respond to our environments and actually um, navigate our world. Yeah, I mean, we all know that sunlight is good, you know, and, and the, you, you want a, an office space that has windows in it. You, you know, you want to get some natural sunlight, get some of that vitamin D. Uh, but, but, it, but, but again, we all we fall into that idea that this is this is a clean place, and we don't want a bunch of dirt around. Uh, but we're <laughs> actually smelling the dirt, interacting with the dirt, and interacting with that outside air, far healthier for us than that so-called clean air that's coming out of that ventilation duct. Yeah, and you've seen study after study about kids who are exposed to dirt, uh, mm-hmm. particularly kids that live in rural areas or on farms. They have a far more robust immune system than kids who are kept in very clean environments. And as we, you know, begin to learn more and more about the microbiome and how it is gaming us in our environment, I think this becomes really important. And I'm very intrigued by this idea of, of designing a microbial environment for ourselves, particularly in our human habitats, which are our homes and our office spaces. Yeah, because that's really where we're leading with all this. I mean, that's the, the, the really the mind-blowing idea of it here is that reaching an age where you're designing a building, not only the structures that are, that are present and the, the, the engineering of the building and the, the look of the spaces and the movement of people through it, but also the movement of micro uh, bacteria through it, the, 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 the managing of the microbiome of the building, almost like it's itself a living thing, and realizing mm-hmm. that it's an artificial environment and finding ways to, uh, to make sure that that skews in the positive direction instead of the negative. You know, I would love a little beneficial bacteria to be introduced during the winter months here yeah. in our office because that's when we all get sick and we don't necessarily stay home when we should and we cough all over everything so it would be nice to sort of say okay we're going to fog the place with some good germs yeah, or just bring in the dirt you know it, it makes true. me think of the uh, some of the vampire myths where the vampire needs to sleep 
in uh, in its own uh, like grave soil, its native grave soil. I mm-hmm. believe that uh, this was uh, in uh, in Bram Stoker's original Dracula was, as well. Yeah. That he needed he needed some of that good old Transylvanian dirt to bring it with them. In, yeah. So it's it's kind of like that. Like maybe that's what it is. The, the, the vampires need the the natural uh, microbiome that they knew in the grave. All right. Just you know, new soil and a new land is not going to do it. Um, so in addition to our yoga room that we would like, our med- meditation room, our labyrinth room, and our cafe, wait, we would Holly, like... Holly requested a, a human dog run room as well. <laughs> All right, the human dog run room will need, um, I don't know, some sort of like dirt play area, uh, some sort of backyard habitat. Yeah, or I guess like just like a Roman atrium where it's just open to the elements and it has plants growing in it and, you know, a statue of... A god. See, and you make it all fancy. <laughs> I like it. Here I am. I'm just about to, like, you know, throw in a couple of pails for us <laughs> in the dirt. But, yeah, sculptures would be nice. All right. Well, there you have it. I think uh, a few takeaways that we should make here. It, first of all, realizing that our, the, the artificiality of our indoor spaces and how artificiality um, is not is certainly not always good. Um, open a window if you can. Breathe in that outdoor air. Mm-hmm. And uh, unless there's a warning that you need to stay indoors, depends on what kind of city you live in. Here in Atlanta, we occasionally get those uh, warnings. True. Um, smell the dirt. If you haven't already, make sure you smell some dirt. Smell some plants. Yeah. It's going to help you. It may make you your brain work better, and it may reduce anxiety. And uh, also take note that roller derby girls are not just doing battle at the physical level, but also the the cellular level, the microbial level. So when you see the next tournament you see, just know that there's a different kind of colonization going on. Uh, well, they tend to look kind of grubby out there. So it's, I mean, good grubby. But, you know, they're sweating. There might be a little blood. You know, makeup is getting uh, kind of uh, smeared. So uh, Right now, ripe for these sort of conditions. Exactly. For this sort of takeover of one another. All right. Well, on that note, let's call over our robot here and let's uh, let's go with a little listener mail. See what uh, people have to share with us. All right. This one comes to us from Shay. Shay writes in and says, uh, "Hello, Robert and Julie. I was pursuing past episodes the other day, and to my delight, came across the science of gremlins and mogwai. I am also a mogwai lover, uh, though gremlins uh, not so much, and proceeded to listen with attentiveness and gusto as I performed my household duties, uh, as I usually do, to the tune of your wonderful voices. I was very much enjoying the science of these fascinating creatures until about three quarters through the podcast. You, uh, Robert, made a grievous error and had." me doubting all faith in your scientific research ability and dedication to educating the masses with factual information. You were discussing survival in a natural environment and went on to say how pugs were selectively bred to be ridiculous lap dogs and would not survive in a natural environment. Well, I never... You, sir, have obviously failed to to uh, really think about the design features of the remarkable pug breed. Luckily for you, I am here to fill you in. First... The eyes of the pug are very big and sit almost to the side of their cute little face. This is so that they can see predators and prey from all angles, an essential trait for survival. The curly tail of the pug isn't just for being adored, but can aid in stick retrieval. Uh, They can quite (laughs) easily hold onto a stick with that curl and therefore achieve numerous things, such as they could build a shelter to keep them safe from the elements, 
pugs are that sophisticated. If there happen to be two pugs holding sticks, they can rub them together to spark a fire. It could happen. Also, holding a stick makes them look larger and more threatening, perfect for warding off predators. My pugs, yes, I'm a pug owner, have very thick coats, which would certainly be enough insulation in a milder climate. Perhaps not the Arctic, but maybe here in New Zealand. Also, don't discount the use of, of a pug in a domesticated environment. A pug will happily warm your lap all day if needed in the winter. Well, I hope you have uh, had an eye-opening experience and will think again before making such ignorant remarks. Yours truly, Shay. Well, there you go. There's some uh, there's some of uh, of nature's wondrous innovations in the form of the pug. Um, the eyes of the pug. The eyes of the pug. I hadn't really thought about their certainly their prey so much because um, their prey generally stays in one spe- one place and squeaks mm-hmm. when it's poked. Um, but uh, but uh, you know I I did rag on the pugs some in that particular podcast, and uh, I did have to self correct. Like a little, uh, like a few weeks later, when I saw a pug helper dog uh, on Marta on on the train uh, going uh, home from work, which gave me a whole all new respect for the pug as a, a useful true. breed yeah. and not merely a, a lap dog. So I had to take a lot back. I have a lot more respect for pugs now. That's true. That's true. You did bring that up, and you yes. did say the pug is worth my time or more worth my time now. But now I know they can build things and 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 create fire. So there yeah, you go. I mean they walk softly and they carry big sticks. All right, here's another one. This one comes to us from Heather. Heather says, Hello, I just listened to your coffee podcast, and I had to write in. I'm one of those caffeine intolerant individuals. I love coffee, but have immediate and severe gastrointestinal results when I drink a cup. Interestingly, I used to be able to drink coffee, tea, hot cocoa, soda, etc., but in college one night I drank way too many cups as I was at a coffee house, around 16 cups of coffee. I was, quote-unquote, coffee drunk that night, uh, nauseous. Uh, spinning a room and had a bad hangover the next day. I had coffee, tea, and soda after that, but started to be more sensitive to it until I finally had to stop. Now, 20 years later, I'm even more sensitive to it because I have stayed away from it for so long. I can have chocolate, solid, not hot chocolate, but I have only small amounts at a time. Thanks for the interesting podcast, Heather. You know, I was wondering what would happen to someone if they drank that amount. Like, you know, just excess amounts, and now you know. That's... I mean, because you really have to dedicate yourself to drinking coffee all day long for that. Well, there's a Futurama episode where Fry drinks 100 cups, and at 100 cups, um, time stops, and he's able to move around with super speed and <laughs> save the day. Uh, this reminds me, there was a convergence of our coffee episode and also our uh, Stendhal Syndrome uh, episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had an, uh, Recently, we had a, a listener write in and talk about having that reverse Stendhal effect yeah. when they walk into, I think, Costco. Like they're, they're at a strip mall. Or, yeah, and yeah. they're overwhelmed by like the size and scope of uh, of commercial America, mm-hmm. and it m- gives them like physical unease. And then also we talked about coffee and about how it makes uh, you need to um, to poop. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I recently went to a Costco for the first time, and I had been to a Sam's Club in the past, but I'd never been to a Costco. Uh, but my wife recently got a membership, so we we went there to buy some things in ridiculous bulk, and. Uh, and we were about halfway into the store, and it's a huge space, like enormous space. With and just, it's overwhelming, and I'm overwhelmed by the the size of things. Uh, but then there's a guy handing out little cups of coffee, so I take one because that's what you do. I, and and it, it made me feel a little more safe because I felt like I was back in a smaller Trader Joe's or something, and I'm drinking a little cup of coffee. But then I had to go, uh, and it was and it like oh, so just, you are going there? Okay. Yeah, yes, yes. I had the coffee, and suddenly I really had to go to the bathroom. And at first, I thought it was just like all right after I 
find this giant container of soysage that I need to find and bring that to the cart, then I really need to think about finding a bathroom. But then I quickly realize, no, there's no time for soysage. I need to find the restroom. I'm in the dead center of the store, and I have no idea where it is. So I d- and I knew that I would, given the distances involved, I would only have time to head for one corner of the store and hope that that's where the bathroom is. And if it and if it wasn't there, then I would have to create one of my own. Fortunately, it worked out, and I picked the right corner of the store. But it was a it was a very frightening experience. Wow! Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. Seriously, I'm glad that you dropped your sausage agenda. Yes, and you didn't have a choice. Um, so was the toilet supersized? Um, the to- the bathrooms were nice. I was yeah. improved, they, they, but they were not enormous toilets, and there were not an enormous amount of them. I, but, I have uh, heard that uh, Costco was supposed to be the fancier version of Sam's. Well, uh, I haven't been in a Sam's in a while, so I can't really speak to that. But Costco was it was clean inside, and there were lots and lots of things to buy. So, <laughs> so if you ever find yourself at a Costco, scout out the bathrooms yeah, first. Yeah, certainly before you have any coffee. All right, here's another one from a listener who wishes to remain anonymous. Uh, he writes and it says, Hi, blow the mind, guys. When I got out of federal prison, I had three years of probation. Uh, one of the terms of my probation was that I not play any soccer. Uh, considering the playing soccer had nothing to do with my crime, it seemed ridiculous to me to give up playing. The problem was that I also have, have to be polygraphed every four to six months. Uh, as the time for my first polygraph approached and I was playing soccer four to five times a week, I started to search for ways to get around it. Uh, the tack technique, which we mentioned mm-hmm. in the episode about like putting a tack in your shoe and causing some physical pain there, the tack technique seemed a little too obvious, but the idea of creating a false baseline seemed like the way to go. As you uh, may not know from watching movies and TV, the person administering a polygraph will only ask you yes-no questions. So the question is not, what is your name, but rather, is your name, insert name here. To create a false baseline, my simple solution was that whenever they asked me a baseline question, are you sitting down, do you speak English, etc., I would imagine that he had asked me, did you play soccer? This served the dual purpose of giving my line a little boost for the simple question, and when they asked the question about soccer, actually they would ask, have you done anything in the past four months to violate your parole? I was a little relieved that I was finally being asked, and so my line wouldn't react as much. In, in line, yeah. he's talking about the line that goes up and down on the polygraph. The graph, yeah. yeah. This all worked uh, worked a charm, and I easily passed all of my polygraphs. The only trouble came the one time I was so focused on asking myself the wrong question that when the polygrapher asked if I was sitting down, I immediately said no. Uh, I really enjoy your show, and if I ever get arrested again and my probation states that I can't listen to stuff to blow your mind, I am confident that I will be able to continue listening and pass my polygraphs, uh, any polygraphs they might give me. Cheers. Wow. Yeah, okay. That I mean, that was... First-hand knowledge on this, right? Yeah. I mean, what, I love hearing that because you know we we do all this research and we you know we have some anecdotal stuff from some of the research that we that we call, but to be able to hear this person's playing this sort of game with that is really fascinating. Yeah, and how he or she went about it. Yeah, with high stakes. Yeah. All right, and here's a final one from Murphy. Murphy writes in and says, Hi, Robert and Julie. I've been drinking coffee since I was a little over a year old. I was begging for what Mom was drinking, and she gave me a taste to deter me. The plan backfired, causing me to grow up under the influence of caffeine. After listening to your podcast, I wonder what life would be like without my usual one to three cups in the morning. But then I thought about 
I thought that any observation of myself will change the behavior of myself and no accurate data will be recorded. Uh, <laughs> sounds like somebody's been drinking coffee this morning. And uh, reading their Heisenberg. Yep. This thought could, of course, uh, be a lie in my coffee-saturated brain invented to keep itself from having uh, to live a day abstaining from the delicious, delicious toxins. Uh, there is no good way to sum this up. Murphy. People feel very passionate about their coffee. Yeah, it's the dark brown god, and uh, I depend on it. So I'm not going to attempt to thwart it. Indeed. Yep. So there you have it. A few listener mails to get through. Uh, sadly, we don't have time for more in this episode, but uh, we'll continue to try and uh, pimp them out, and we would love for you to keep uh, sending them to us, uh, particularly in regards to this episode uh, and, and our previous ones about workspaces and the microbiome in your workspace. Um, how does this change your way of looking at your work environment? How does it change the way you think about the air that's coming in through that uh, vent versus the air that comes in through that window if you could possibly open it on your building? Um, we would love to hear from you. Let us know. You can find us on a number of places. We, of course, have StuffToBlowYourMind.com, the mothership of all the things that we do. You can also find us on social media. Uh, we're on Facebook and Tumblr, Stuff to Blow Your Mind. We are on Twitter as Blow the Mind. And over there on YouTube, uh, we put all of our fabulous videos up at Mind Stuff Show. And you can also drop us a line and let us know about your microbial adventures at BlowTheMind at Discovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 